Crunch. Not only is it a systemic labor issue plaguing the games industry, it's also a popular and particularly delicious brand of candy bar. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we're answering your burning questions about when we think it's okay to use a video game guide and what a world without development crunch might look like. Those burning questions, as well as one more thing, coming up, so stick around. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Maddie Myers. And hello, here we are making Triple Click yet again. It's nice to see both of you. Good to see beautiful people. (laughs) Yes, such beautiful people on a beautiful May day. So before we get started, a couple things up front as usual. First of all, people have written in to ask sort of about supporting the show since this isn't, we're not like a Patreon podcast. And I think people Mm -hmm. sort of understand supporting a show in the context of Patreon. We're listener supported, but it's a little bit different. So I thought I'd just run through that, run through a couple of things up front like that. So to support us making this show, you go to MaximumFun.org slash join, and then you become a member of Maximum Fun, which is the network that we're a part of. When you become a member of Maximum Fun, you get at even at, you can like join it at a bunch of different tiers. Mm-hmm. But if you join even at the lowest tier, you get access to bonus episodes from every Maximum Fun show, including Triple Click, which we're going to be doing a lot of those, like one a month about thereabouts and you also get like cool other stuff at higher tiers maximum fun stuff it's there's a lot you can get if you go to that website maximumfun.org slash join you will see all of that so that when you do that you can choose triple click as one of your shows that you listen to and that's kind of how you pick us to support us and then some percentage of your money that you're giving to maximum fund goes to us then so Mm -hmm. that's how that works however the other thing you can do of course is to spread the word people have been spreading the word it's been wonderful we've seen um, people right in to tell us that they're telling their friends about the show or that they're converting people to be listeners, which is really nice. We've seen some cool social media um, sharing going on as well, which has been cool. <laughs> yeah, we just got a nice email. Shout out to Nate, who just sent in a nice email saying, congrats on the new show. He's thankful that we're podcasting together. And so far, he's convinced two friends to follow the podcast. And yes, now it. this so is what we need, yes. people. Superhuman heroes. <laughs> it's, it's e- I love it. Each listener tells two of their friends, and they tell two of their friends, and they tell two of their yeah, friends. Yeah, because it's triple click. So each of you yeah, has to convert. Exactly. Two more people that make exactly. like super fans. And then we have these <laughs> knives and we're gonna send them to you oh, and no. you sell you buy them from us. And uh, <laughs> that is definitely not what we're doing. Not no, what we're that doing. That is not at accurate. Just However, kidding. as Jason mentioned, you can also reach out to us. We love getting listener emails. You can email us at tripleclick at maximumfun.org. You can also find us on Twitter at tripleclickpod. We love to hear from you. And actually, we're gonna be hearing from some of you on this episode. So those are those are kind of the main vital things to get out of the way up front. Yeah, so real quick, also, an announcement that I think a lot of you will appreciate. So, um, as Craig mentioned, we have these bonus episodes. Um, I think we're going to wind up calling them Beans Casts, but we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss. <laughs> Essentially, they're spoiler casts that we're going to be doing about once a month. And the first one, as we've mentioned a couple times, is going to be on Final Fantasy VII, the remake. Um, but we've gotten some feedback from folks who feel like it was a little bit unfair because we've been talking about this for weeks now, including on the old show, about how we're going to do a spoiler cast about Final Fantasy 7 Remake, etc., etc., And so people felt like it was a little unfair to lock it behind a paywall, only make it available to subscribers. So here's what we're going to do. 
for this episode only because we've gotten that feedback and we want to make it right to all of you fine folks. Um, we're going to release the episode to subscribers in late May. And then two weeks after it goes out to subscribers, we're going to give it to everyone for free. So this is only going to be the case for this one episode. Future Beans Cast, Spoiler Cast will be subscriber only. They're kind of like a little bonus, a reward for people who help make the show possible. But Final Fantasy VII Remake will put on the main feed for free and early to mid-June. So look forward to that. Yep. Maddie, uh, I hear you have some news. <laughs> I have an announcement, which is that I have a job. Maddie has I, a job. Mazel tov. Thank you. I am senior games editor at Polygon.com because I've just decided to do an elaborate form of A-B testing on every video game publication. You know, you work at Kotaku. Why not sure, try Polygon sure. out? See how those guys do Does it. Does that mean you edit senior games? Yes, only games for seniors. That's right. Um, I just wanted to check out the games that my parents are are into these days, which mm-hmm. is mostly Dance Dance Revolution, from what I understand. Mm. That's uh, so I'm going to be reviewing that over and over again. <laughs> well, that is very exciting. Congratulations, Maddie. And Thank uh, you. yes, now we have a we have a Bloomberg reporter, we have a Polygon editor, and we have and a saxophonist, a saxophone player. That's <laughs> really quite a trio here on Triple Click. All right, so let's get into our main segment for this episode. This is going to be a segment that we are going to call. Burning questions. Pow, pow. <laughs> the questions, questions are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> They're burning. And these are your burning questions. They're so too hot to handle. <laughs> Listeners burning questions. Who Any listener who writes in with maybe a question for us to discuss. We've gotten a whole bunch from people. Thanks to everybody who sends them in. We, of course, can't get to everybody's questions. But if you write in with a question, you may get your question featured on a future burning questions segment. So for our first burning question. Uh, let's, uh, Maddie, how about you read this question that comes in from Taylor? Sure. Taylor writes, I find sometimes it's hard not to use a guide or walkthrough for some games, yet I feel my experience of the game is somehow ruined by looking away from the screen to read someone's description of where I need to go. What are your opinions of game guides and walkthroughs? How often do you use them? When do you use them? Do you avoid them on initial playthroughs? What is your advice on using walkthroughs and game guides? <laughs> this question comes at me because I really want to play Super Metroid on my SNES Classic, but I'm intimidated by missing something. I don't want to use a guide for it. I have a lot of thoughts on Super Metroid, but I'm going to kick yeah. it over to you guys. <laughs> what if we start there? I, I have like a lot of thoughts on these broader questions. Yes. Just Let's just start with the Metroid thing, maybe. Let's just talk about Super Metroid for two hours, you know? So, <laughs> well, yeah, I was like, what's the shortest version? Can you just give um, Taylor some advice, Maddie, on a guide for Super Metroid and feeling intimidated about missing things? Yes, absolutely. So the first time I played Super Metroid, I played it without a guide. And I played it by talking to my friends about Super Metroid, which was an incredibly fun and old school Mm -hmm. way to play Super Metroid. And I really recommend it. And I actually have another friend of a friend who's doing that right now, even in quarantine. And I got a text recently from our mutual friend asking me how to get past one of the bosses in Super Metroid, which I then passed along some tips on how to do it to this person who is trying to play Super Metroid the old school way by just talking to their friends, which is kind of like using a guide, but kind of not. Super Metroid also has a ton of signposting and you can like really explore the entire game. It's not that big of a game. Like, you can Mm -hmm. find all the energy tanks if you just search every nook and cranny. And in a lot of cases, it's clear where you're supposed to go. Unless I'm misremembering, I don't think there's anything that, like, you can lock yourself out of getting. That's right. 
Until you get to the end game, obviously, when the planet's exploning. <laughs> yeah, then you gotta that. lock yourself out of the planet by getting back yeah. to your ship and uh, not dying. Man, just spilling beans. <laughs> just spilling all the beans on Super Metro. Oh, yeah, what spoiler. the heck? Spoilers, the planet starts exploding and you have to get Is out. Is there maybe like a timer and you have to escape on, in a Metro <laughs> like game? Like an alarm what? sounding? You need to jump up a series of platforms in order to get well, out? The statute of limitations has expired on that particular Yeah, I, I think that's probably safe to say. Well, just just don't say what the Metroid's allegiances are, you know? Don't no, spoil the big don't stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> so I have lots of thoughts on, like, when to use a guide, but I do like, just to kind of pick up something you were saying, Maddie, I mm-hmm. like the the greatest guide, I think, is the friend of yours who's played, who can just yes. give you the subtle nudge. I'm thinking back to when each of us played the Outer Wilds, or yes. just Outer Wilds, I guess there's no the, because that's such a game that the whole game is in discovering things, and if you mm-hmm. use the guide for Outer Wilds, it would ruin what is otherwise this magical, incredible experience. Yeah. But sometimes, and there are a couple of places in that game where you might kind of get stuck or want to know what to do, and it's mm-hmm. so helpful then to have a very compassionate friend who can listen and has played the game and then give you the exact like what i would do a lot of times i would even just ask questions i would say Mm -hmm. so what have you done here okay well how does this mechanism work and then in explaining it the person trying to figure out what to do would figure out what they'd be like oh i got it i know what to do and that (laughs) was kind of the best feeling i wouldn't even tell them anything that's hard to get from the internet but i do think that's kind of the best possible way to to get Mm -hmm. over a hump yeah although in that case you have to know a friend who's played the game and in some cases you don't so i feel like the other half of this question is when do you use guides and my personal story of the first time i ever used a guide was when i played the first metroid prime that was when I finally cracked Mm. down. I was in my, I think I was 21 when I played that. And I was like, I, I'm, I want to know where every single thing in this game is. It's a Metroid game and I want to be sure I get everything. And so I finally got over the mental hurdle at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess it's also worth saying that I had a book guide to mist, like a, one of those paper (laughs) books. I guess that was technically the first time I ever used a guide. You kind of needed a guide for that game. That game was crazy, but great. But yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember playing Metroid Prime. I was like, it feels weird to use a guide. And then since then, I'm like, I just use a guide if I hit a point in a game where I can't deal with mm-hmm. it anymore, which uh-huh. I guess that's different for everybody. But uh, you know when you hit it, right? Well, you know? so there are two different types of guides, right? There's right. the guide of like, how do I get past this? How do I beat mm-hmm. this boss? Or how do I get past this? How do I find the weakness? Right, and the guide puzzle. of what do I even do? Like, how right. do I solve a puzzle? What do I even do next? Or how do I 100% every single thing in the game? Right, and, like, the min-maxing guide. guide. Yeah. yeah, I've been playing Persona five royal and first of all if i hadn't googled like a certain thing i wouldn't have even known that like in order to unlock the new content which is the entire reason i've been playing you have to actually get certain confidants up to a certain level by a certain date and the game kind of signposts this and tells Uh you like oh this guy's leaving soon so you better do this and it also Mm -hmm. happens to be the three new confidants that you have to get so it kind of it makes sense but um but i had no idea that there is and i could have fucked myself over and like not gotten the entire new semester or new palace which would have really sucked because that's why i was playing the game um but yeah persona 5 is actually the perfect game for like a guide of min maxing and some people use like a guide that tells them exactly what activity to do on every day because every day you you go and you fight in a dungeon or you go and hang out with your friends and there's only Mm -hmm. so much time you have in the calendar because it goes on real time um and if you don't 
take advantage of like, oh, okay, I know that Akechi is over here and, and Yusuke is over here, but Yusuke, I haven't ranked up with him yet. And you like play this giant interlocking puzzle in your head of like what I can do and how to build on my social stats and stuff. And so these guides on GameFAQs, you look them up and they're intense. They're just like, here is every single thing you have to do. I was reading one guide and at the beginning it was like, if, if the crossword in our guide is different than what you got, you missed a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> well, but does it take you out of the game if you have to check a guide that often? And like, how often are you? Checking I never it? would do that. No, no, no. I'm not doing that. I was just looking through it just because it was. I was just trying funny. to figure out no, no. what uh, I had to do to make sure I would get the new stuff. And so right. I was like, okay, which days can I go see this confident and make sure that I actually get them? But it, I wound up being fine. But no, Persona Five. If you're just following a guide, what's the point of even playing? Because the whole point of the game is to like make those decisions on your own. Of like, okay, I mean, I mean that's your take, right? But I. I th- I'm sure there are I people so. who do find something out of the game by playing it with a guide. Like, even though I'm with you on it, especially on a game that can be as rigidly structured as Persona. Well, so mm-hmm. by guide, I don't mean, I, I just, I mean the min-maxing guide. Like, I mean following the instructions of what to do every single day. Mm-hmm. Not just yeah. following a guide, like, for, for fun or for hints or stuff. No, right, right, yeah. right. It, yeah, it kind of, it really changes the nature of the experience at the very least. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I guess there are a number of different kinds of guides, which mm-hmm. might be an interesting thing to talk about. Let's focus just on like specifically guides that tell you where to find things, how to solve puzzles, how to get mm-hmm. through things. Only because I have a few times where I do use guides like that. I really try to resist it, but there are mm-hmm. times where I do. And let me think what they what are. are the okay, times? So what are the times? When do you hit your limit? <laughs> One is for older games. Um, yeah. If I'm just playing like especially old JRPGs, I just don't feel any preciousness about getting through everything, probably just because JRPGs tend to kind of, I don't want to say waste your time, but things take a lot longer in those games. They're just like a lot happier. Sure, you could say they waste your time. A lot of them waste your time. You just spend a lot of time like listening to repeating dialogue and going places and then doing a thing and going through Mm -hmm. a really kind of onerous menu that makes you drop off one item and then you do that 50 times. No respect for games that waste your time. (laughs) <laughs> no. And so, well, and older games just kind of were more like that. So when I'm playing through, like, if I'm playing through Final Fantasy VI, I'm sure I'll use guides to get some of it. Like, not for the main story, but to get through side stuff or to, to not miss things. Well, so a game like that also has all this esoteric stuff that you can miss easily. And, like, right. like, at one point early in the game, you have to say no to a character three times when they ask for your help in order to get a better item than you would if you said yes immediately. Wow, very biblical. That's an, That is kind of biblical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I am. Um, I'll sometimes that's another version is I guess this is sort of similar but at the fringes of the game I'm fine to use a guide like if there's just some really weird hidden thing that requires you or to like go a weird side quest or something yeah, yeah I'm thinking of like there was a um Horizon Zero Dawn there's this really good armor you get in that game and you have mm. to pick up these little things at various points throughout the story and I think I'm not sure if you can miss any or not, but I really wanted to make sure I wasn't. And there are actually guides now that are written online to this end that'll just say, here's the big picture. There's one thing that you don't want to miss, and it's in Chapter 5, and that's the missable one. So just be sure you grab this thing in Chapter 5 when you walk past it. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you can kind of go at your leisure, and now we'll tell you exactly where all the things are, which Mm -hmm. is nice. Like, guides have gotten a lot more... Um, considerate of the different types of advice people want, which is like a nice reflection of how we play games, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, guides are where all the money is in games (laughs) journalism. Well, they've gotten better at them, though. It's nice to see them get better. Not real money, but that's where all the traffic (laughs) is, I should say. Yeah. 
Right, right. But I mean, I think a lot of them are written now so that you can also just search for the specific problem that you're having. Sure. And they're written with the assumption that you'll have a set of those problems because the person who played the game to write the guides probably also right. ran into those issues and took a bunch of screenshots while it was happening mm-hmm. so that yep. they could tell you. And then you just do the old control F on the page and be like, well, where where is this stupid key? And then you find that one sentence and that one screenshot that shows you where it is. And then you can just close that window and go back to playing the game. That is my ideal situation with a guide. I don't like having to follow a guide to the letter every single time. I really just prefer to use them for that one instance where I've looked everywhere. I just can't, I'm just not seeing whatever signpost I'm supposed to see. And clearly it's somewhere and I'm just missing it. That is the circumstance in which I will use a guide. And that's about it. Can I say also that I want to just throw my support behind written guides on the internet. I don't want them to all become video video guides. Because, like, there are times, there are totally times where the thing, like, in Destiny, sometimes it would be like you have to jump up a weird wall to get to a thing where I would watch the video because it was just easier. Mm -hmm. But when I'd find, especially the guides where they draw the little arrows on and they say, there's the thing. I'm like, this is what I want. I want to look on my phone. I don't want to stop and watch a video and, like, fast Mm -hmm. forward around to find it. I want to just find the thing in an article. So hopefully those never go away. So (laughs) let me, the other couple times that I will use a guide. One is if I'm just tired of the game. There was actually like, there's a play. I'm in a place in Final Fantasy VII Remake where I'm sort of like doing all these side quests in Chapter 14. Uh-huh. And I kind of just looked at some of them to see what the heck they were and what they uh-huh. even paid out. Because I was like, I just want to get going. Like, I kind of want to get the story going. And it just yeah, feels like you're I'm, good to skip those. Don't I worry. I mean, you can skip them. Yeah, yeah. That was the main thing is that then, Jason, you were kind of like, you know, it's not a huge deal. Like, I did some of them. It seems fine. So that's one. When I I'm, did all of them and it's fine. You don't need to do them all. Right. Okay. That's good to know. So, um, and then the last one is, and this is a little different. I use guides when I play horror games, especially like Resident mm. Evil games, pretty yeah. liberally, actually. Um, <laughs> in Resident Evil 2 Remake, I use, I, I spoke about this on split screen, but I use not only a guide, I would always look at stuff online like, when's Mr. X going to turn up? Because I didn't want to turn him off. I don't want to mod him out of the game or change the game. But you want to be emotionally prepared. Yeah. So and like, you know there are just. And there are times where you'll trigger him at a really inopportune time and then you have to deal with all the stuff. And I know that's like the magic of the game and some people love that, but it stresses me the F out and I don't yeah. love it. So I did I use guides for that. And it just that it gets me more into a relaxed headspace with horror games, which can kind of ratchet up the stress to where I'm not having fun. So uh-huh. I do find that guides can be useful for that, too. So I want to talk about another angle entirely, which is the idea of reading guides for pleasure. So when I was a kid and I'm sure some oh, people out there have the same experience. I'm so glad you're saying this because I, I did the same thing. But so when ahead. I was a kid, I used to get those beautiful Prima Brady game strategy guides mm-hmm. and um, they were usually for like these big JRPGs that I would play on the PlayStation 1 or like Super Nintendo or something like that. And I would get home from school and like at dinner I would always have a book in front of me. Sometimes it would be a real book, but then sometimes I would be like, you know what, I'm just going to read the strategy guide. So like a lot of games, well, so first of all I had strategy guides not just for games that I actually, uh, actually had and played, but also, sorry about the baby crying but also for for That's games fine. that i didn't even own like just vicar- vicariously experiencing them through the strategy so, yeah. guides that was what i did is i wasn't allowed to have game consoles growing up and i remember so you just got the consoles <laughs> just guides. i would read the guides i would like we would have like this i don't remember where this was i think it was like the scholastic book fair yep mm-hmm. sometimes you could get walkthrough books like mm-hmm. those would be among the books they yep. sold and i remember getting one it was just like a bunch of nintendo games because the walkthroughs for those games were just a few pages long because the games just weren't that complicated mm-hmm. and i remember it was the teenage mutant ninja turtles nes game 
and um, I didn't have a Nintendo, and I couldn't play the game, but I really wanted to. And I remember just reading along, and I read the whole thing, and it was kind of like, it was a little like a proto- Let's play. Do you remember those let's mm-hmm. plays that weren't videos but were blog posts where people yeah, would post I, screenshots? They're still and around. Them. They're still on something awful. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, there's actually those, yeah, a let's like, play archive. You can find them and read right. them. I've read a few of those. It was a little like that, but it was a tips post or a, whatever, a walkthrough. But it was yeah. the same feeling of I can't play this game. Mm-hmm. I can yes, now, so I'm just going to watch through. this. Uh, or I can yeah, read this well, thing so the it. awesome thing was like if I couldn't finish or didn't feel like finishing a game, um, the second thing, the second reason that I would read them was just to like get. Mm-hmm understand the rest of like what was going to happen and sometimes they would they were very like the the quality disparity was was big um everyone knows the fi- or a lot of people know the final fantasy 9 infamous guy that just said like check playonline.com um, on every single you page you wrote like an article about, about that right yeah but yeah, that was um funny. but some of them some of them would like go in depth on the story while others would just like not mention story points at all but something there's something very sad about the fact that like future generations won't get this because strategy guides in print are so rare these days and uh those yeah, they'll get other things like, though right they'll get youtube videos I don't no know. i know but still it's not quite the same <laughs> yeah instead they just get twitch streamers that they get to have a parasocial relationship with for <laughs> right. hours and hours and hours they're really missing out though on those strategy right. guides <laughs> you get home and it's like 4 30 5 o'clock you're like eating dinner and instead of flipping a strategy guide you're staring on twitch at your phone fu- at twitch <laughs> on your phone that's mm-hmm. kind of the kids mm-hmm. today little, they just kids these days <laughs> <laughs> do I yeah. sound so, like an old man? Well, it's fine. We all do. So one of Taylor's <laughs> questions was, do you avoid walkthroughs on an initial playthrough? Mm. And that I do. And here's a thought related to kind of soul style games. Yeah. And that is that I do avoid walkthroughs for a lot of those games for like how to get through different areas of them. Mm-hmm. But then there always comes a point, especially in from software games, where there's something that you need to do, usually to get to, you know, a huge castle area with a special <laughs> dragon boss and all this cool stuff that you could literally just miss if you didn't know about this. And you have to go do an emote. This is, I'm thinking of Dark Souls 3 specifically. You have to it's go. some d- obscure shit, right? You like do an emote next to a, you know, I don't remember. Like you have to match some statues emote and then a dragon comes and carries you away <laughs> to this place. And it's like, if you don't know to do that, you're never going to do that. You pick it up from maybe some little subtle clues. If you really know these games and know what to do, maybe you'll find it. On stuff like that, I'm happy to look at a guide for Bloodborne. Yeah, I use one for Bloodborne. For getting the true ending where you have to like get these whatever kin pieces or whatever. I mean, like, if you want the quote unquote true ending of any game, you're going to have yeah, to use that's a guide. True. Like, <laughs> the whole concept of a true ending is like, mm-hmm, God, mm-hmm. okay. You're just going to look it up. Yeah, especially when there's like things you can miss and you need to get onto a certain track pretty early. Mm-hmm. And even looking at a guide too late, it'll at least tell you, okay, you you blew it. <laughs> you're not, not going to make this happen. <laughs> so yeah. you can kind of just skip out. Yeah, I feel like guides are really normalized for dating sims as well for that reason. Mm-hmm. Because like any right. type of, I mean, just for the the one true ending reason but also like you want to see every ending you're gonna have to know which arcane dialogue choices to choose right. and the only way you could know that is either your own trial and error or a guide and i feel mm-hmm. like it's pretty socially normalized to use them in that genre at least a couple other guide thoughts one is there can be too many guides i struggle with build guides like mm-hmm. a lot i don't know if either of you do but when i'm playing a new especially like a from soft game something that's going to be very demanding oh when i was playing what's the game called oh dragon's dogma 
There are so many build guides for that weird game because there are all these specific builds. This is, you know, build is what your stats are and the, the things that you're going to use. And you want to build toward a certain loadout that you're going to get maybe five hours into the game. And you could never know this stuff mm-hmm. unless you've played it a bunch of times, which some people do. And then they write guides. Those guides always just give me analysis paralysis. I just wind up reading them and everyone has a different opinion. It's a little like PC building where they're like, no, mm-hmm. definitely don't use that heat sink. That's garbage. That'll <laughs> scorch your CPU. Yeah. And like, it's the same thing. And souls are like, oh my God, no way. Never put points in decks, only strength. Like, cause then you can get this great sword. And I'm like, and then there's another person arguing that you need to only put points into whatever right. you just read that you need <laughs> right. to never put points into. And it's the only way to right. play. And everyone's yeah. so convinced <laughs> that they're right. Yes. That you're just like, shit. <laughs> like, I don't know who to believe. Uh, it's almost but, like it's subjective. <laughs> you know, and it tends to be there will just be someone who'll be like it doesn't matter like just mm-hmm. get a sword I just and like, read until I get to that comment and I'm yeah, like that's exactly. right and then I close yes. the tab <laughs> yes I definitely follow that person as have well have you guys ever gotten a, a print strategy guy that then turned out to be completely obsolete because the game changed so much I was thinking about Diablo 3 and how oh, that man. I had actually I interviewed a prolific strategy guide author um, not too long ago and read his memoir and stuff which is good actually um, but he was talking to me about Diablo 3 because he wrote this guide and then it became useless because literally everything in the game changed so wow. much. I guess that's another reason that print guides just can't yeah, work yeah. with modern just, games. No, because it'll tell you all these stats and bugs and stuff and right, everything right. just gets patched I mean, out. That even happens online. I'll read, you know, tips mm-hmm. from Monster Hunter or something and they'll be trying to say in the in the post, you know, oh, this is the 1.4 version, but it's like it's been a year. I'm looking. Sometimes the tip is from 2013. I mean, this goes beyond games, right? You'll be like, how do I turn off this stupid thing in Mac OS? And you'll find a post from 2015. And it's like, go to this menu and select this option that no longer exists for you. And so yeah. I think that's maybe, maybe broader than just games. But yeah, definitely a problem. All right. Well, plenty more to say about guides, I'm sure. We would be happy to hear your thoughts on when you use a guide. Write in to uh, tripleclick at MaximumFun.org. Yes. We always want to hear from you. So let's do uh, let's do another question here, another burning question. Jason, why don't you read Vince's burning question? Sure. Vince says, imagine a world where crunch was no longer a thing. Perhaps people, the developers have unionized and all employees at all game studios were given a guaranteed schedule of 40 hours a week, no overtime. What do you think would be the consequences of this as it pertains to the quality and scale of games that are produced. I imagine that crunch has to happen right now because of pressure from investors to ship a game by X date. Should crunch culture be eliminated, I can't imagine that pressure would also go away. So a studio is given the same amount of time to produce a game, but they don't have the manpower to ship a game like The Last of Us 2 or Red Dead Redemption 2. And perhaps the budget doesn't allow them to double their staff to potentially double their work output. What would video games look like without crunch? And what would the entire video game landscape look like? Would games become shorter, more episodic, in nature would these big budget games cease to exist at least as we know them this has led me in a very conflicted direction without being able to change the entire way the industry functions not just crunch but investor Hmm. pressure etc is crunch necessary in order to be able to continue to be able to enjoy the games i love what would life look like without god of war the last of us red dead 2 etc as they are now or at all Man, this is uh, an interesting question. I have a lot of thoughts on this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do too, but I'm I'm interested in your thoughts. So why don't you start? Okay, well, I, I can give some some overall thoughts, which is um, first of all, I mean, I, I don't really think that even if game developers unionize, I don't think that anyone would really say like we have we should have a guaranteed schedule of 40 hours a week right. and the context here that is worth worth getting into a little bit is that there are a lot of different kinds of crunch like I don't mm-hmm. think anyone in the world would object to like uh, a, a week of like overtime to finish a, a 
one last deadline, like working some nights for a few days in a row to like get some get some work done, um, get hit that last stretch, like get those bug fixes in, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that crunch can be this like all encompassing thing that's months in and at a time, and you don't know when it's going to end, and there are constant direction changes, and things are coming down, and people are scrapping what you did and changing things and overhauling things, and that's it, it combines in this stew of like all the other problems that go into the video game industry, the volatility and the sexism and the harassment and and the low wages and et cetera, et cetera. And that's what really causes the the root of issues. Um, but that said, in this hypothetical scenario where crunch couldn't happen, um, I mean, thir- first of all, my immediate thought is that like a game like, look at a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, because that is a game we know a whole lot of man hours and woman hours went into making. Um, that is a game that could have been probably two thirds of the size and would have been just as good if not better of a video game um so i for one when i hear like oh my god like like we would never have the time or manpower or budget to ship these masterpieces without working these ridiculous schedules i just think well maybe these masterpieces could be a whole lot smaller and they would still be masterpieces like that that's something that is always that i've always Mm -hmm. thought about um but the other part of this equation is the mismanagement and it's the mismanagement that ultimately leads to the crunch and that is kind of that is one of those complicated human error leadership problems and like making a decision and not being able to stick with it or thinking that you have a better decision a year in and and going with that better decision even if it costs you people along the way um those are really the things that you have to kind of wrestle with when you're unpacking this uh this question but i mean ultimately i i just don't uh, i i don't think i think we could still get great games without crunch culture i think that that is something that could happen like i think that it's very much inertia that is on the taking the game industry on this path that it's on now where it feels like everybody has to put in this this like light themselves on fire to make games yeah what do you guys think yeah i think that the 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 difference between crunch and crunch culture is important like they're kind of two different things like like you said, working really hard and working extra hours to make something good. But, you know, like you, anyone who's ever made anything knows that you spend a ton of time on it, especially when you're in the finishing stages. Like making even, God, forget making an album, making a single recording. There's yeah. this, you spend so long <laughs> making it. And then the last 50% of hours you spend on it is just like the finished thing, making it perfect. And it, you just, you do because you care and you want it to be good. Mm-hmm. And any artist who's going to make anything worthwhile is always going to do that. Mm-hmm. So making it a culture, like you said, Jason, of just like every month, we're just kind of always doing this, even when there's no deadlines, we're just, this mm-hmm. is just what we do for the whole last year of mm-hmm. development of this game. Like that's gets into like, that's a cultural problem that it's just accepted that that's a norm of the games industry. And that is the kind of thing that could be pushed back against and changed, even though fundamentally it is always going to require a lot of work to make art. My thought is, I like the idea of a world where there's just some weird rule that this could never happen, but just like you cannot ever go over 40 hours a week. What will you do? And I think I agree with you, Jason, that it's like, well, if that was somehow this like imposed hard limit, people would still find ways to make cool stuff. Like if if people didn't let me spend however many extra hours like fine tuning the whatever of a song, it would still probably be fine or I'd find a way to like make it work. It just or those hours would be much more productive. And that's right. something maybe. That I've seen. Yeah. And it's there have been a lot of arguments in favor 
favor of like the four day work week because if yeah. you didn't, if you felt more right. refreshed on those, if you were working eight hours a day, four days a week, and you felt more refreshed in those hours, spent less time like checking Twitter in between projects or yeah. whatever. Well, there's that, but I also feel like a lot of creative people, and I, I include myself here, work in fits and starts. Like I'll have a mm-hmm. day where I want to work like 12 hours straight because I'm like really feeling it. Either I'm just like working on a story or a song or whatever, and I'm like really in that zone. And then I'll have a day where I'm like, it's just not, it's not in me today. But mm-hmm. if you're working in a place where you're expected to work overtime every single day and you just have to be at your desk forcing yourself to work or at least have the appearance of working, which those are the crunch stories that I read that make me feel really sad. It's like the people who are in an office where they just have to be there for 12, yep. mm-hmm. 16 hours a day, whatever absurd number of hours is. Come in Saturday because the houses are coming Right, to town. because you just have to look like you're working and you're not even right. actually getting anything productive done. Like that to me is what crunch culture really is and why it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's not, I was really excited about this. I just wanted to keep working for 12 hours right, and like tomorrow right. I'm going to work for two or I'm not going to work for any hours because I mm-hmm. will have already like done my awesome day. And that yeah. that is okay to encourage to me. And I feel like when I talk to indie developers, a lot of times they'll talk about having a studio plan that has something like that or trying to normalize stuff like that because like the discussion of crunch has obviously trickled down into indie studios and the way that they talk about their projects. And that's really cool to me. Like, I'm glad that it's something that people are talking about now and being like, yeah, we have a more flexible work schedule now and we do not force our reports to work on Saturdays. But if they're really excited about something and they want to work on a Saturday, we'll let them have it, but then they don't get to come in on Monday or whatever. So that I think ties in with like the sort of costs and incentives part of this, which like the impossible world where everybody is locked into 40 hours a week. Okay, that's like an interesting hypothetical. (laughs) Yeah. But there is this world where if people were compensated, like if it weren't mandatory overtime, if you were going to work overtime, you get paid overtime. Mm-hmm. You're like the people in charge now have a much stronger negative incentive to allow things to spill out to where people are working tons of overtime every week. Right now, the incentive for management to not let people crunch is basically, well, we don't want a culture of it. We don't want there to be a Kotaku or I guess a Bloomberg article (laughs) about it. (laughs) And we don't want to lose people over the long term, which is like a pretty tough incentive, that last one. It's like, yeah, that's a problem. And you can see it if you really look, but it's easy to not look and not see it and just be like, I don't know, it's fine. And there's always another 21 year old who's willing to work like absurd hours for three years before they get burned out (laughs) so you can then kind of tell yourself well we're just filling the chairs and so it's fine but like if you're actually it's costing your bottom line it's getting really much more expensive you have Mm -hmm. it's just kind of a stronger incentive away from allowing that and that seems like an actual like a way toward this like a version of of what vince is talking about which is that Overtime is allowed and possible if you need it. And if you're in like a real place where you're like, we're so close, let's like make it perfect. But there's a strong incentive to only do that sporadically because it's very expensive or for whatever other reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem is it's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. Like a lot of, I mean, a lot of typically what happens is that a game studio, you're either on salary or you're hourly. And typically the people who are on hourly are also on contract. And both of those types of workers are expected to crunch. In fact, I've heard from some rockstar folks back in the day that, and more recently, that like sometimes they wouldn't want to be promoted to full-time positions because they were making more while crunching hourly. And then I heard from some people who were like, oh man, now that Red Dead 2 is out, we're not crunching anymore. I can't make a living anymore. I have to go somewhere else. So right. it, it was definitely the case, like it's definitely the case all around um, that people are getting paid for their overtime if they're hourly workers. Right, um, but right. the fact that the system revolves around that is pretty messy. 
messed up. <laughs> right, usually a sign of a system that needs reform. Well, part yeah. of the problem is that wages are so low in the video game industry, and that's mm-hmm. going to be so infuriating if you're like at uh, uh, Infinity Ward or Treyarch, you're working on the new Call of Duty game, and you're right. making 20 bucks an hour, and you're seeing that Bobby Kotick is taking millions from you and mm-hmm. the work you're and doing. And that kind of gets it at a, a thing with this question, too, is that you? it's hard to look at crunch as an isolated thing. Like anytime, as The Wire has taught us, <laughs> anytime you look at one aspect of a, of a system, you then realize that it's just one thing of a huge interlocking system that then that system itself is part of another like macro system of systems that all... Yeah, capitalism. Yeah, yeah so like yeah. you start talking about crunch, soon you have to start talking about wages. You're talking about labor, you're talking about unionization, you're also talking about representation and reform and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And like, so it's hard to imagine the, the games... The way games are funded and maybe there are problems with that and like how right. they're sold and what we consider to be right. sellable in a game. <laughs> And so, on and so, so I guess that is kind of a form of an answer for Vince is that a world without crunch is a very significantly different world along a lot of different axes. And so to imagine a world without crunch requires a big imagination. You have to think of all these different things, but it's sort of a cool exercise. So, so part of this equation is that a lot of the times when there's like a huge crunch problem at a studio or on a game project, it's because of the cycle of like the, the stops and fits of game development. And like, so mm-hmm. I actually... Actually, I wrote about this in my new book coming out next year. Um, but mm. the there's a certain I won't say who, but there's a certain game developer um, that used to be around a few years ago, a very famous game developer, and their process was kind of infamously to just fuck around for a couple of years, and then once they figure out what they're making, go on and make the thing. And mm-hmm. so it's like two years of relaxing and in creative paradise, and then another two years of hell crunch production, and that's. <laughs> (laughs) case for a lot of games that's the case for a lot of studios that's the case for a Mm -hmm. lot of creative directors who just not only are are like in that world of like imagination paradise idea land for a while before they actually execute and sit down and make something but also they might come in a a lot of game developers always talk about iteration because that's the most important thing in game development is like figuring out okay is this fun what if i move this guy a little to the left is that more fun what if i change the controller so there's a tiny bit it's usually more fun if you move the guy guy a little little bit to the the left left. it's almost always the answer is yes. I think it was Sid Meier who said that. Uh, always move the guy to the left. Um, just slightly, just a little bit. That's the rule one of game development. Just a little bit the rule to the one. left. Um, tighten up the graphics and move yeah. the guy to the left. Tighten him um, up, move him to the left. But yeah, the 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 idea is iteration, and then on a grander scale, it's like if a creative director decides, you know what, actually this level isn't working. I have a different vision for that. You know what, seeing this on on paper looked a lot more fun than actually seeing it in the build. There is so much like there's so many incidents of just people throwing things out and changing things, mm-hmm. and it's all in the service of a better game, at least in theory. Like we don't know for sure if what was thrown out might have been better, but in in, in theory, it's like this is making a better game, but it's prioritizing the game over the people because suddenly you're like making all these people who worked on this feel like shit because they just crunched for a month and now you're throwing out what they did so that is one of the severe problems that like not only causes crunch but also makes that crunch feel all the more brutal because you you know that you just put three weeks of like not seeing your family into something and that thing is no more it's not even in the game Mm -hmm. anymore 
I think crunch works as a topic because it winds up being a focal point for a discussion of the entire process of making mm-hmm. video games. Like it's such a it's a flashpoint and it's like a you know something that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about, but it winds up being a broader conversation in a lot of different ways. So I guess that's one reason we keep talking about it mm-hmm. is because when you talk about crunch, really you're talking about everything and then solving for crunch means solving for a lot of other bigger systemic issues. But Vince, hopefully that is a a satisfying conversation and beginning of an answer to your question. I'm sure it's a question we'll be trying to answer uh, for the foreseeable future on Triple Click. So that'll do it for this burning questions. As always, if you have a burning question for us or just a regular question, like a room temperature question, feel free to write in (laughs) to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org. Let's take a break and we'll be back with one more thing. I can't hear myself, but I'm assuming These are real podcast listeners, not actors. uh, Hey, thanks for coming. Here's a list of descriptors. What would you choose to describe the perfect podcast? I mean, vulgarity. Dumb. Definitely dumb. And like, uh, right here, this one, meritless. What if I told you there was a podcast that did have all of that? No. Jordan Jesse Go. And it's free. Jordan Jesse Go? Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go. A real podcast. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. And we're back, and now it's time for one more thing where each of us talks about one more thing that we want to talk about. (laughs) Maddie, what is your one more thing for this week? Okay, so I beat Final Fantasy VII Remake, and I have very few things to say that are bad about this game, but I just want to complain about one aspect. <laughs> You're like, I love it. One more thing is the complaint. <laughs> no, well, okay, but listen, I we just talked about the side quest a little while ago, and I played mm-hmm. every single side quest in this game, and a lot of them were very extraneous and silly, but I actually enjoyed every single one, which is why I bothered to play them all. And I am totally down for just shooting the shit with the characters in this game and like watching Cloud's facial expressions and watching some cutscenes, whatever. I will run around and find CDs for a little girl or find lost cats. Like I'll do all of sure, that sure. stuff just for the sake of living in Midgar a little bit longer. And I'm already sad that every day when I wake up now, I don't get to play this game anymore. And that's uh-huh. just me. And maybe I'll play it again. I don't know. However, there are so many extra boss fights in this game, and there's so much of the padding of this game, which, Jason, I know you talked about, and you talked about side quests, but I feel like a lot of it is just extraneous boss fights. Like, there are mm-hmm. so many moments in this game where in the original game, it wasn't even close to a boss fight. It was like a two-second interaction that you have with Reno or whoever, and mm-hmm. now it's a boss fight in this game. And I don't love it. What did you guys think about all of the extra boss fights in this game? 
One of the funniest things in this game, I tweeted a gif of this actually like a week ago, is I think it's in the haunted the the haunted railroad or what's it called? The, the train Ghost. graveyard. Train yeah, graveyard. Train, train graveyard. graveyard. There it is. Um, where there's a boss at the very end and it's this ghost or something and yeah. it appears and Cloud pulls out God, his buster sword and he says, he like pulls out and he's like, I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> and I was like, Cloud, you feel me. That's me with every boss. Right. I, I was like, especially there because they're running, they're trying to get back and you know, there's like a time pressure on. And but then there's this fucking time pressure up. on. Like every single time they do That's anything true. in this game, they're in a hurry to go do something really important mm-hmm. and then they have to like fight a motorcycle guy or like a right, different a other ghost. bigger motorcycle guy right. <laughs> yeah fine. i'm not i the boss fights in this game definitely are like something that i don't generally love i there are times where they're fun but i i don't love the combat in this game in general i mm-hmm. voiced this opinion on twitter <laughs> in the midst of a, of a tweet thread about why i think the game is great mm-hmm. and i just said as an aside i was like it's not perfect like combat isn't great you know whatever mm-hmm. and a Combat is the best thing in the game. Yeah, it seems really love it or hate it, which is interesting to me. And I think it's just dependent on whether you enjoy micromanaging and switching between characters a lot, which I've sort of realized I don't love. And a lot of times I'll just want to play a whole fight as one person, not because there's one character that I really love playing as, because I actually think they're all pretty fun. I just tend to like playing a fight as a character and just getting the feel Mm -hmm. for them, getting that rhythm, as opposed to what you kind of need to do in this game, which is switch between everybody every time and make sure they're all doing their choice and that all of their right spells are being cast right, at the right times right. and that they're all pointed they're in the right the direction. Yeah, they need to they need to divide up the dishes, the vacuuming and the laundry and they just aren't always doing it and I just need to tell Aerith right. and Tifa what to do every day and it's tiring. You know, Jason, you mentioned is it called the Gambit system? What's it called in FF12 uh, where yeah. you can like Yeah, I wish wish that was there in this one. Did you get yeah. the auto cure? The auto heal materia is nice. That, that is helpful and there's mm-hmm. the provoke materia which helps mm-hmm. As well, with like making sure that people are being attacked or attacking the right things, but it doesn't go as far as you want it to go, at least in my experience. Right. So, my gripe, my gripe is mostly about like like situational awareness in the camera and the way that the game conveys information. Yep. I just think it's like a mess. And I know that some people are fine with that and have gotten around it and learned mm-hmm. to master the system. And a lot of people have said actually that on hard mode, on the hardest difficulty, that's where the combat system comes into its own and begins to really shine. Yeah. Which I kind of get, I guess I get that you could like, once you... Hard mode, by the way, you can't unlock until after you beat Exactly. It. So once you have a whole bunch of stuff unlocked and you have like all your materia and your abilities, mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, now I really know how everything works. I know where to put everything. It's time to do this. And I think it, it also won't let you use items, if I remember correctly. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can only use spells to heal, right? Which like yeah. I'd never, well, I use items to heal, I guess, but I don't use them for a lot of other stuff. But so anyway, I yeah, I just have these issues with like the readability of the way that like it's it feels a little rubbery it feels like magnets bouncing around on like a table to me like the way that combat moves i'll watch videos i just saw this video today of tifa just kicking the living shit out of this oh, guy like yeah it was like a bayonetta clip yeah she feels a lot like bayonetta i really enjoy the way that it was tifa cool. feels to play as and i feel like there's like a version of me that unlocks her fully but she's so she's such a glass cannon in so many ways like she can mm-hmm. really take a hit which i guess counteracts how powerful she feels to fight as when you're like connecting but yeah i right. mean i i 
I think that's part of it is just, I wish I enjoyed the combat a little more. And I think I would find all the extra boss battles a lot more exciting and less frustrating if I liked that combat management stuff, which is less noticeable in the like just average fighting some slimes in a corridor battles. Like those are always cool and fine. And I don't even mind switching around. But in a boss battle that lasts like, you know, 10 minutes or two hours, depending on how frustrated you are in the moment, uh, it's... It's like some of the only moments I've been frustrated with the game have been those really long boss battles. Yes, and huh. pretty much the entire rest of the game, I'm like, this flipping rules. But <laughs> just those bosses, though. <laughs> All right, so Jason, I see what you've put for your one more thing, and it's just a person's name. Yes. Uh-huh. And I'm curious what that means. So what's your one more thing? <laughs> My one more thing is Harvey Weinstein. And Interesting, great. okay. Heard of him? Weinstein. Heard of him? Steen. <laughs> is it Weinstein? It is. I always say it, uh, I always say Weinstein. I don't know why. Um, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, so I have read, the reason I bring him up is because over the past few months and then more recently, so a few months ago I read a book called um, uh, 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 Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow yeah. about Harvey Weinstein. And then this week I read a book called She Said about Harvey Weinstein. I want to read both of those books. Um, so I'm curious what and you think so of them. so I wanted to bring them up because they're both really interesting books. So just to give you an overview. So these Ronan Farrow and then also um, Jody uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi were the writers of She Said. Um, so Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi were the people who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in the New York Times in October of 2017. And then about a week later, Ronan Farrow ran another big story in The New Yorker that had more details and just kind of expanded upon what the Times had reported. Um, so Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, is written like a thriller. Like you can tell, you can imagine the movie in your head as you're reading it. Um, a lot of it is about his own personal interactions and his own paranoia that like people are following him, which turns out to be real and true because people were following him from right. this Those Black uh, Cube people. Israeli yeah. spy organization called Black Cube. I think they're ex Mossad or something like that. Um, and so that is like it's a riveting read uh, in its own right, and it's very much like like it's a thrilling read in a lot of ways. And so that's that's like a really compelling book, um, but it's very much about Ronan Farrow, and that's for better or worse. Like I've read some criticism online about how he kind of mm-hmm. made the story about himself. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that. Uh, my perspective is kind of that he has the right to tell his own story just as much as anyone else does. Um, but but you could read this and and certainly um, there's definitely stuff in there about the victims of Harvey Weinstein and he you see his interactions with them. But a lot of it is about him and his own personal thoughts. It's it's written in a very um, movie thriller ish way, like in the protagonist's head and um, you're getting the sense of his paranoia and like he'll have all these section breaks that end with like and then I turned around up oh, there was no one behind me like that sort of thing right <laughs> nice. he's a good writer too so. she said is a really interesting compliment to that because she said is this very like matter of fact by the book reported piece that is like here is what Megan and Jody and the way because it's co-written by both of them they actually write it all from a third person perspective so it'll be like then Megan did this and then Jody did this and it's very much like these two reporters going through the boot leather the shoe leather like like boots on the ground reporting process of like here is exactly what happened in this wow. reporting process and how we found these people and they share emails of like how they approach some of the subjects some of the victims of Harvey Weinstein and they talk about their personal interactions 
friends and like trying to convince them to go on the record. And obviously there's some of the same ground of like Harvey Weinstein contacting them and threatening them over the course of the story. But it's a lot more of like um, behind the scenes journalism than it is like the thriller approach of Ronan Farrow. So hmm. this is another interesting look. And then there's one, the one caveat here is that she said uh, only like two thirds of the book is about Harvey Weinstein. And then for some reason they go into the Brett Kavanaugh story for the last third and they weren't actually personally involved with that so it's kind of weird and not really clear why it's in there um so uh kind of like a mar on the book a blemish on the book but the harvey weinstein stuff is really really interesting hmm. cool yeah, yeah i've heard i've heard Cantor and tui i think it was on the daily but i've heard them on a couple podcasts mm-hmm. maybe talking about this and the way they talk about the story is just cool because they're both clearly very good reporters and hearing mm-hmm. reporters talk about reporting is cool and there's the story i guess i I don't want to spill the beans. There's a story about like a diner and a phone. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jason? And it's mm-hmm. like the information and it's it was wild. I was like, man, yes. breaking the story was a wild and like intense process. I mean, basically someone one of their pr- pr- perspective sources like handed them a phone and then went up, got up to He's use like, the bathroom. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Like, I'm just going to yeah. leave this here. Oh. It was very much another like movie moment. There are a lot of yeah. movie moments. It was some even spy shit. Yeah, that was great. So hearing them tell the story is pretty cool too to like hear yeah. it, them talking about it. Was so the reason I bring this up and this kind of relates to the crunch conversation we had is because the Ronan Farrow book was like entertaining and depressing and riveting and like all these things that you would expect. But she said actually gave me a lot of thought and like left me with a real impression um, of which is that they spend a lot of time talking not just about Harvey Weinstein but about the people around them around him who enabled him and allowed him to be this monster at the Weinstein company and so Mm -hmm. it's like a lot of like they go in depth on some of these these orbiting figures who were like who knew about his behavior or like had mm-hmm. some idea of his behavior and were only concerned about like how will this affect the company how will this affect the liability of the company they also get into this woman named Lisa Bloom who is this lawyer who ostensibly oh, yeah. like said she like went out there and defended harassment victims but they share emails from her to Harvey Weinstein about like here is how we dis- discredit these victims and here is how we make you you the 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 subject that everybody like pities and she just seems like a real piece of work that one but it's mm. just it's just very clear that like again systems right it's all systems it's like this one person sure he's a monster and awful but nothing he did would have even been possible if not for all these people around him who were just like concerned with prioritizing profits and liability and the company's protection and saving their own asses and like not wanting to confront him and not wanting to bring anything up and um, she said also has one person who kind of reckons with that and like eventually does the right thing but it's really it really makes you think a lot about like like uh how these people are able to keep doing what they're doing and how this keeps happening and so it's worth reading even just for that but yeah both books i like both both yeah i, mean, I, I want to read them both i'm gonna read sure. them both too nice sold well my my <laughs> one thing is uh animal crossing <laughs> but- <laughs> no that's a good way to end it we, we've been too heavy so far yeah Let's it's been to, a crunch we got crossing. harvey weinstein it's been a lot of tough <laughs> topics animal crossing and capitalism is my mm-hmm. my one thing um so i'm still playing animal crossing emily and i are still both playing she's really into it so we're really into it together which has just been really great um and now that i'm kind of in end game you know kk slider came into this concert and i can start to customize my island i've been been sort of doing all the end gamey stuff you do in this game a lot of which is you know try to get the cool things that you really want from your from the store so you like want things to come in stock and you go visit your friends to go to their store to see what they have in stock and trying to like really beef up you know what you've got 
The main reason I can do that, though, is because I have a lot more money than I used to. And that is because I used the turnip exchange, because I've started trading turnips. More now, systems, capitalistic systems in yep. action. This is fascinating. So in Animal Crossing, every Sunday morning, uh, a turnip vendor turns up. I think her name is Daisy May. Turnip, turnip vendor turns up. She turnip, she turns up. Yes, <laughs> that was not even on, that wasn't even on purpose. It just, it just happens. Um, so she turns up and she's somewhere on the island from like I don't remember like eight a.m. to noon. She's only there for a limited window of time, and you can buy turnips from her. Then it reminds me of Zur and Destiny or any like limited time weekend vendor because you kind of yeah. There's some MMO like oh, attributes yeah. to Animal Crossing. Definitely. Well, and so especially to the turnip system. So oh, yeah. you buy a bunch of turnips and you buy them from her at a set rate that's, I think, random. And then throughout the week, not on Sundays, but every other day at 8 a.m. to noon and then from noon to 10 p.m., there are two turnip prices at your store. And those also change. So that further like locks you into this little calendar where you're like, well, if it's morning, going to check on the turnip prices. Yep. Your turnip prices are always garbage. Almost always. Like you'll buy them for like 98 bells per. You'll get like a bunch of them. Like I'll get a couple hundred thousand bells worth. And then you're waiting for someone to be, you want it to be sold for like 400 bells each. You can make like 4x profits. Mm -hmm. But at your store, it almost never happens. So if you just play locally, it's this it's this kind of game of like, oh God, should I sell now? I'll make like a 10% profit, but that's not really that much. I could wait, but I've only got one day left because on Sunday your turnips go rotten mm -hmm. and you can you just have to buy new ones. So you have until Sunday to sell. Or you can go visit a friend and go to their store. And if they're selling, they're buying at a good price, you can make a bunch of money. Yeah. And if you have good friends, they have a Discord channel where they all post their turnip yes. prices all the time. I just want to point out that you are not producing anything. You are not adding any value to the That's world right. of Animal Crossing. <laughs> you are simply buying turnips and selling them for a profit. But the thing I keep coming back to is the person who said that video games offer the fantasy of capitalism that just works perfectly. Yes. And there's, yeah. it doesn't make sense, but and it the works. The fantasy perfectly. of meritocracy and so yeah. On. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is just a stock market where it's purely just buy stuff and then sell it if you can. And none of yeah. it really matters. <laughs> like there is no actual stock market. So, yeah, if you have a bunch of friends or like a workplace or something, I think there might be a Max Fun like channel where they where they like do this. <laughs> I um, hope Daniel so. was talking about it in the news. He was talking about the newsletter last last week, which I haven't gotten in on yet, but I should. Yeah, but clearly. I've been asking just various people that I know like, oh, hey, do you know of anything? But what I wound up having to do last week was a thing called the turnip exchange, where you just go online and you sign up and you like get in a queue and then you can just go visit someone's island and sell your like turnips. Like a stranger? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like totally automated. It's an incredible site. You can find it if you want to get rid of your turnips. I'm sure everyone listening to this knows about it. And it was amazing. I made like a million and a half bells. I just like <laughs> got in a queue and then went to someone's island and was like, hi. And I gave him a couple of Nook Miles tickets and then I like made a ton of money. Oh, so man. now I'm doing Soon that. Soon you're going to be starting a hedge fund. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I wonder if I get a, like a good price if I'll want to go there and be like hey give me your stuff and you can come visit because people I just I want to know now that you've gotten the taste of money for nothing like do you want to apply <laughs> yeah, that to start, real life uh, playing the stocks no. in real life yeah no if it were this easy I would but it's not so I'm sure some stockbroker out there will tell me that it is but mm -hmm. no anyways it's changed the nature of the game for me somewhat um, it's really entertaining to see the layouts that people do they'll build like signs with arrows leading to their store and they have little toll booths to accept the tolls and let you pass and it's all very creative and like reminds me of a lot of other cool things in other games where players like build systems outside of the game to coordinate things like this and it's it's been fun to see if it weren't even if it weren't so profitable it would be fun to experience but it's also nice that i now have tons of bells and can buy whatever like add-ons and bridges that i want yeah. to buy maybe i should start doing this and then i can I capture some it. footage
package and edit it together to all of the billions theme music because <laughs> that'll be really if, funny just to me personally absolutely if that if that hasn't been done oh, it man. needs to be done all right well i think that that i think that'll do it for this week's episode of triple click but we cool. will of course be back next week to talk more about video games thanks so much for listening and uh yeah i'll see both of you next week see you next time bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edited and mixed the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll head over to MaximumFun.org join and consider becoming a member. Doing so helps support us and gets you access to an exclusive Triple Click episode each month. Find us online at TripleClickPodcast.com, on Twitter at TripleClickPod, and send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.